We are in Leviticus 16 today. Leviticus 16, which deals with the Day of Atonement. And because this chapter is so critical and central to Leviticus and actually to uh, the Pentateuch itself, uh, the Day of Atonement lies somewhat in the center of Leviticus as a book. But it also, uh, interestingly enough, is somewhat center to the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It plays a central role in understanding the way that God uh, communes and maintains fellowship with his people. And so we're going to read the entirety of chapter 16. So if you have your Bible with me, or if you have your Bible with you, you follow along with me as I read. Leviticus 16, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, or he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen, uh, linen tunic, and the linen undergarment shall be next to his body, and he shall be girded with the linen sash and attired with the linen turban. These are holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Then Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Aaron will cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron will offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. Now those ten verses were something of a summary introduction Starting at verse 11 through verse 28, we have more of the ceremony or the ritual in action. Verse 11, Then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his household. And he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. He shall take a firepan full of coals of fire from upon the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense and bring it inside the veil. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony, otherwise he will die. Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. Also, in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people." And bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel, and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting, which abides with them in the midst of their impurities." When he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. 
Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and of the blood of the goat, and put it on the horns of the altar on all sides. With his finger he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times and cleanse it, and from the impurities of the sons of Israel consecrate it. When he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. He shall bathe his body with water in a holy place and put on his clothes and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. Then he shall offer up in smoke the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The one who released the goat as the scapegoat will wash his clothes and bathe his body with water. Then afterward he will come into the camp. But the bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be taken outside the camp, and they shall burn their hides, their flesh, and their refuse in the fire. Then the one who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water. Then afterward he shall come out into the camp. Here's the conclusion. This shall be a permanent statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you will humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statute. So the priest who is anointed and ordained to serve as priest in his father's place shall make atonement. He shall thus put on the linen garments, the holy garments, and make atonement for the holy sanctuary. And he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall also make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. Now you shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once every year. And just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so he did. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we have already asked and prayed, we would ask once again that you would cause us to see your goodness in the reading and the hearing of your word. Open our eyes, Lord, to see wonderful things from your law. Help us to see how desperate our situation is and how deep your grace and mercy are in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. May your Spirit be at work in us and among us this morning. For Christ's sake, amen. So the Day of Atonement. We're going to try to take this in, in three steps. The first observation that we want to make 
is just simply to say that as you look at the setup here for the Day of Atonement and you consider the context in which it's set, one of the conclusions that you have to reach and that you have to draw is that we are unable to account for all our sin. Number one, we are unable to account for all our sin. Number two, considering that, what we need and what we see in verses 11 through 28 is that we need our sin cleansed and carried away. And then number three in the conclusion, verses 29 through 34, we rest in the work of Christ who does that cleansing and that carrying away. So number one, we are unable to account for all of our sin. One of the interesting things about chapter 16 is the way that it's set up, the way that it's introduced. It's introduced reminding us of the fact that Aaron's two oldest sons, Nadab and Abihu, entered into or approached the presence of the Lord and were struck down as the fire of the Lord came out and consumed them on the spot. So as you think through the progression of Leviticus, remember that chapters 1 through 7 give you all of the sacrifices by which the people are made able to draw near to the presence of the Lord, by way, they, by way of which they're able to approach the presence of the Lord. They can't come on their own. They have to come through a bloody sacrifice that atones for their sin. Chapters 8 and 9 go on to say that in part because of how unworthy or unclean the people are, they can't offer up their own sacrifices to the Lord, but a sanctified, holy, set-apart priest must serve them in their interest for their sacrifices. In other words, they bring the sacrifice to the priest, but it's the priest who will offer up those sacrifices to be accepted by the Lord. But then in chapter 10, we realize in a, in a horrible way that even the priests in and of themselves are not pure enough, are not holy enough to enter into the presence of the Lord on their own merits or in their own rights. That if they do not enter in fully clean, in full obedience to the command of the Lord, even the priest will be struck down. And if the priest is struck down, there is no way for the sacrifices of the people to be presented to the Lord. Everything hinges on the priest. And so beginning in chapter 11, the Lord wants His people to know what it means to approach Him as holy and pure. In this broken, rebellious, fallen, sinful world, there are impurities everywhere that defile you. You have to clean yourself of that defilement if you are to approach me. And not only are there things out there that defile you, but there are things that are unique even to your human nature that defile you. Both outside and inside, there and here, there are impurities everywhere. And unless I can make sure that I am clean and ready and fit before the Lord, I cannot approach him, I cannot draw near. And chapter 16 is the culmination of all of the purity laws and all of the purity teaching that starts in chapter 11 
But it provides us the culmination or the climax of this call to purity and holiness by reminding us of why we needed this instruction to begin with. In verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. Look in verse 2. Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, or he will die. Three times in the first two verses, death is mentioned as the consequence for approaching the Lord inappropriately or on your own terms, without permission, without being qualified, without being clean and sanctified. Life or death hangs in the balance depending on how you approach the Lord. This is the great tension of Leviticus, that on the one hand, it is the greatest gift and blessing that God could give to His people to give them Himself. That what makes them different, what sets them apart, is not anything that they do or not anything that they are, but that they and only they have God living in their midst. That is a tremendous gift. That is a gift that no one else but God's people have. And yet, with that gift comes a fearful, terrifying realization that I am not equipped to enter into the presence of this Lord who is meant to be a gift of life to me. That which was meant to give life has become death to me instead. And yet Leviticus goes on to say over and over and over again that one of the mysteries, one of the profound realizations about the God that we worship is that at no time does He ever minimize or diminish His holiness at no time does he ever cloud over or paper over or ignore the sin of his people. Those two things are inextricably opposed to each other, and yet, with his holiness and his people's sinfulness, God in his grace and mercy provides a way for those two to come together. But the question is, in, in Leviticus 16, I thought that we already had laws given to us, we already had commands given to us about how we were to keep ourselves clean so that we could come to the presence of the Lord. Why are we being given another ritual, another sacrifice to offer? Right? If, if you're a person who likes, just practically speaking, likes the law of averages, here's what you ought to be thinking as you read Leviticus 16. If every time someone approaches the presence of the Lord, they risk death, wouldn't you want to minimize the number of times that you approach the presence of the Lord? And if the Lord has already given in chapters 11 through 15 all of these sacrifices and commands about how to keep ourselves clean and fit and ready to enter into His presence, or, God forbid, if we are impure, how we can step back into the realm of purity so that we can approach Him, why add on another requirement, another regulation, another ritual that we run the risk of messing up so that we're exposed once again to the threat of death? Why another sacrifice? 
And I think the answer is, as you read in Leviticus 16, because no matter how many sacrifices the Lord gives to His people, no matter how many washings they, persist, they participate in, it's never enough. Never. Look, look with me. Skip towards the end of the chapter. Look at how, this, in the summary conclusion to the Day of Atonement, look at verse 30. It is on this day that atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. The implication is, or the point is, that until this day comes, you're not atoned for. You're not cleansed from all your sins. You may have been cleansed of some of your sins. You may have washed and cleaned yourself from some of your impurities, but not all, you still need this day in order to be clean from all of your sin. You're never done. You're never clean. You're never pure. You're never in a position where you can go boldly to the throne, as we sang today. No one in the Old Testament could sing that song. Boldly I approach the throne above. No one could sing that. The point is, is that even if these people are following the letter of the law perfectly, if they are responding to every act, event, sight of sin and impurity that they are made aware of, even then it's not enough to come into the presence of God. Listen, listen to that. Two, two verses, we could, we could pull on many, but two verses that sort of get to this point. David says in Psalm 19, he makes this statement. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Do you hear that? Acquit me of hidden faults. Later in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 9, which spends a tremendous amount of time comparing and contrasting the Day of Atonement in the Old Covenant with the true atonement that comes with Christ in the New Covenant, there is this line in Hebrews 9, 7. The author of Hebrews says that the, holy, that the high priest enters into the most holy place once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Acquit me of hidden faults, sins committed in ignorance. Do you realize that you are so sinful, you do not even know how sinful you are? Sharon in staff meeting, I shared with some of the other men who have, who have taken on the responsibility of offering up a prayer of confession early in our service. One of the things that has struck me that has been very meaningful and humbling for me is that every single time 
one of these men, how many times have we done it now? Three, four times that, that we've done it? Every time one of these men comes up to lead us in a prayer of confession, they say something, they confess a sin that I would not have thought of. How can that be? Do you understand that if we were to live another hundred years, every day, every, every day that we gather, we could offer up a prayer of confession and we would never repeat the same prayer twice. Our ignorance of our sin, the depth of our sin, does not make us less sinful. The hiddenness of our sin, the deceptive nature of our sin, does not make us any less guilty or culpable for sin. And for this very reason, God in His grace and in His mercy for His people said, with all of these sacrifices and offerings, you need yet one more day for me to cleanse you. And he's given it to them. You need one more day. You need that day, that day that I'm setting up. Christian, can you hear the echoes of the New Testament? You need that one day. What day? What day do you need? to be done with all of your sin that one day. And so in that one day, because of the fact that we can never keep a full accounting of our sin, because there will always be something left undone, because no amount of sacrifices or washings will fully make us pure and holy, because of that, God gives to His people a prescribed ritual to remind them of their need for His cleansing. So in verses 11 through 28, God shows through the Day of Atonement ritual that His people need to be cleansed and their sins need to be carried away. So there are two parts of this that we might look at. Number one is to consider that there is a sin offering that's offered, and then to consider what in the world is going on with the scapegoat that's offered. So the sin offering. Start with me in verse 11. And then look at verse 15. Verse 11, Aaron will offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself and make atonement for himself and for his household. And he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. After he offers up a sin offering for himself, we come down to verse 15 and we read, Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. 
He has to offer a sin offering for himself and then has to offer a sin offering for all the rest of the people. There's no one clean. No one. Even the priest who is there to serve the people, who is there to see to it that fellowship is maintained between God and His people, even he cannot attend to the needs of the people before he tends to his own needs. His sin, his impurity, has to be atoned for first before he can turn and atone for the sins of the people. And precisely for that reason, once again, as we saw in the episode of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10, that means that if the priest is struck down as he is attending to his own sins, you miss out, you lose out on the person then who's supposed to turn and deal with your sins. How comfortable would you feel? How confident would you feel knowing that the guy who is responsible for atoning for your sin before the Lord is just as messed up as what you are? But not only is there no one who's clean, there's also no place that's clean. Look down in the very next verse, in verse 16. It's not simply that the priest and the people have to be cleansed and, and their sin has to be atoned for. Listen to how strange this sounds in verse 16. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting, which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. The impurity of the people runs so deep and so long that they even dirty and pollute the place where God dwells. Do you see, do you hear, do you feel at all the burden that this is? There is no one clean and there is no place clean. Where will I go to get rid of this sin? Where will I go to be cleansed, to be clean, to know that the Lord is going to accept me? Who can give that to me? Where am I going to find it? I've wrecked myself. I've wrecked this world, the very place where God is going to meet with His people. Even that I've polluted and dirtied up with my sin. If you're here today and you don't know where to find the kind of atonement, the payment, the satisfaction, the cleansing from sin that is being referenced here in Leviticus 16. In other words, if you don't know where to find the atoning work of Jesus Christ, let me tell you, you will never 
find freedom from your sin anywhere. The best counselor in the world can try to affirm you and make you feel better about yourself. They can never atone for you. Your friend can help you cope with your guilt, the wreck, the mess of your life, but there's no friend that will ever be able to clean you from it. And you can run to the best husband or wife, counselor, pastor, pope, anything that you want to find any kind of help that you think you can find, that you can grasp for, and no amount of help will ever make you holy. Not unless you have Christ. Look in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 14. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If you have Christ, you have the gift of a clean conscience, to know that there is nothing that you owe to God on account of your sin. You know that you have been made clean and that you have been made whole. And there is no amount of money, there is no number of counseling sessions, there is nothing that this world can offer to give you that kind of freedom and that kind of purity of conscience to know that you are right with your Creator and with your King. Only the blood of Jesus will do that. In these sacrifices, then, there is the reminder of the substitutionary work that needs to be done to make these people clean. Your sin must be accounted for. Your sin must be paid for. But notice most of the work that's done on the Day of Atonement is done, as we would say, it's sort of behind closed doors, right? The priest offers the sacrifice for himself, and then he takes the blood of the bull, and he goes into the tabernacle tent where no one sees him working and laboring to sprinkle the blood around to purify the tabernacle and himself. Then he comes back out and he offers up the goat on behalf of the people. And he takes the blood of the goat into the tabernacle where no one can see him to sprinkle the blood for the people for their cleansing and for their purification. For the most part, 
Up to this point, most of the work that's being done is being done sight unseen. The people cannot see what's happening. Oh, but the goodness and the grace of God with the scapegoat. Look at verses 20 and 22, or 20 through 22. These goats, the two goats for the people, one to be offered as a sacrifice and one to be offered as a scapegoat, are meant to function together. Verse 20, when he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. Aaron will lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he will release the goat in the wilderness." First off, do you hear the scope, the broadness of the confession that the priest makes? In verse 21, he will confess all the iniquities of the people. Iniquity is a word that gets to the idea of crookedness or wickedness. It has a lot to do just with who we are in our sinful nature. Before we even do anything to act on that crookedness or wickedness, we are just wicked and depraved people. Think of the errant or stray thoughts that come into your mind or the imaginations of your heart that you entertain that you would dread for anyone to see or know about. That's iniquity. That's wickedness and crookedness. Aaron will confess all of that wickedness and transfer it to the head of this animal. Then he will confess all the transgressions of the people. This is criminality. Crookedness in iniquities, criminality in transgressions. This is, these are sins that you actually commit by doing what the Lord has forbidden you to do or by not doing what you are to do. You break a command. He's going to confess all of the transgressions of the people. And then he's going to confess, along with that, as a summary statement, he's going to confess all the sins of the people. That is, every way that the people have fallen short, every way that they have missed the mark, even in the good efforts or attempts that they make, if they have missed the mark, it has to be confessed. All of that is being confessed and laid on this one substitutionary sacrifice. And then from there, the people get to watch as the sin-bearer leaves the place where God dwells, leaves the camp, and goes out into the wilderness never to return again. How will an Old Testament Israelite know that they are clean before the Lord? Because they'll look to the scapegoat and they'll say, There, see that? That's my sin being taken away. All of my wickedness, all of my corruption, 
every thought, every feeling, every disobedient act, every insufficient act, every corruption, every way that I have fallen short, there, there goes my sin. It's gone. How do you know, Christian, that you stand clean and holy before the Lord? Because you read and you see with the eyes of faith verses like Isaiah 53. Surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You see with the eyes of faith what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. That God made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. How do you know that you stand accepted before the Lord? You point to the scapegoat who is led outside of Jerusalem, and you say, there goes my sin. It's done. I'm free. I'm clean. If our sins run deeper than what we can possibly imagine, if they are broader and we hope to even hope to imagine, we need something infinitely better than an animal sacrifice. And God has given us his infinite grace and mercy in the substitutionary death of his son, Jesus Christ. All of this talk then, about how we can't give a full accounting for our sin, and so we need that one more day to once and for all rid us of our sin. All of this talk about how we need a better sacrifice to atone for us, to carry our sin away. All of the talk of the priest, all the talk of the sacrifice. Meanwhile, what are the people doing while all this is going on? We're told at the end of the chapter... What are, what are the people doing on the Day of Atonement? This is not a rhetorical question. I'm actually looking for an audible response here. What are the people doing? Someone said it. Nothing. Nothing. They're resting. They're letting their priest do the work. 
They're letting the scapegoat carry their sins away. They are humbling themselves, reminding themselves again of the grace and mercy of God given to sinful, unworthy people. They are humbling their souls, but they are not doing anything to try to win God's favor or to try to buy him off. There is nothing that they can do, and God would not even have them attempt it. He tells them on this day, this will be a Sabbath of Sabbaths to you. This will be a rest of rest to you. You will humble yourself, and you will do nothing as the priest and the animals do all the work for you. All of this, and still we read in verse 34, you shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once yet yeah, once, not, there's no period after that, once every year. As great and good and kind as what God is in this provision in the Old Covenant, how much rest does the Day of Atonement grant to the people? How long does the rest last? One day. One day. One day that ceremonially accounts for all the sins that have led up to, the, to that one day. What happens on the next day? Atonement day plus one. You start to accumulate more sin, more impurity. Temporary wipe clean, but restock the very minute that you wake up the next morning. Look at Hebrews 10. Even in that rest, as good as what it is, it does not compare to the rest that has been given to us. Look with me in Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 4. For the law... Since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Skip over to verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified." In the Old Covenant, you get one day of rest knowing that your sins have been fully accounted for. And even then, as Hebrews 10.4 says, ultimately it's not a true accounting because the blood of bulls and goats could never truly take away sin. It just reminded you that your sin needed to be taken care of. But that one day in the Old Covenant is now every day for the Christian. Every day, you know that you can boldly approach the throne of grace because your sin has been paid for, because your sin has been atoned for, because you have been made clean by the blood of Christ, by His death and by His sacrifice. People do not try, do not fall into the trap of trying to maintain your relationship with God based on the sacrifices that you are going to offer, as if it's Christ's sacrifice that gets you into good relationship, and then your sacrifices, therefore, thereforeward, they're going to keep you in His good graces. That's not the way that it works. It's Christ and only Christ. And if you have Him, that's who you ought to be looking to every single day to give you the assurance and the peace and the confidence that you need to walk in good fellowship with your God and with your King. Let's pray. Father, as a work of grace, would you give us the ability to see more clearly the depth of our sin so that the deeper and the darker the sin, the deeper and the richer your mercy appears to us, the more glorious Christ appears as we look on him with the eyes of faith. Father, give us hearts of wisdom that know how to rest in the finished work of Christ. Who can take confidence in His sanctifying, purifying work, and yet who at the same time want to live in holiness and righteousness of the truth. Not as if we're earning anything, but as a way to simply live according to the gifts of grace that you have given us. May our lives continue to look more and more like the holy life of Jesus Christ by the power of your Spirit. And Father, I would also pray and ask that if there is anyone here who has not been washed and made clean through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, 
Father, that the truth that they have heard this morning would nag and gnaw at their spirit, that they would not be able to rest until they are at rest with you in the work of Christ. Do this for your glory and do it for our good, we ask. Amen.